Hi everyone. Sin's not here right now, but I do have the next best thing. It's a cartoon pirate. Avast ye scurvy swabs. Iceberg dead ahead. Not sure how accurate that is because uh, pirates probably weren't really present in like Arctic or Antarctic waters. Anyway, iceberg memes, those are a thing. It's a meme format. You arrange information vertically on a picture of an iceberg, going from most well-known to most esoteric, with the most well-known information being a literal and metaphorical tip of the iceberg. So like surprising absolutely nobody, there is a Bloodborne iceberg, and um, since Sin and I have talked about Bloodborne, for three years without stopping, I thought doing it was redundant, but then Dahlia messaged me and said, you know you're on this? And I thought, oh, okay. Um, I should probably cover it then? But I don't know if that if that makes it, like, really meta, or it, it misses the point? If someone on the iceberg talks about the iceberg? <laughs> But um, yeah, I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna try doing this in one take, so enjoy this um, meta slash point missing iceberg beam, uh, delete as applicable. Part 1, the sky above the iceberg. Three Third Chords is a reference to the way that you unlock the third ending of Bloodborne by collecting three items that are called Third Chords. There's actually four of them in the game, but it's possible to lock yourself out of getting two of them. So if you want to get the third ending, you sort of need to plan ahead to make sure that you don't mess up getting those two. What third chords are and how they work is something that there's been a lot of debate about within the fandom. Basically, the game refers to them as third umbilical cords, and your character uses them by quote-unquote consuming them, which has led people to believe it is like a ritual that involves you eating umbilical cords. It isn't. The third chords aren't literally umbilical cords, they're just likened to umbilical cords by the people describing them, and they're likened to them because they represent a symbolic link between a child and a parent. The parents in this case are like weird Lovecraft outer space elder god things, so when you use the umbilical cord you're establishing a link with them, like the link between a parent and a child, but it's not literally the umbilical cord. The notion of you consuming the cord, you're not literally consuming the cord. Um, what is happening is you're just using it in the same way that, like, you use the madman's knowledge item. That doesn't mean you're eating the skull. Three of the four cords that we find in the game have been, quote-unquote, used before, and they still exist. So you're not eating them, don't worry. You're basically just putting it to your ear and listening, kind of like if you put a, a seashell to your ear, you can hear the ocean. It's, it's sort of that principle. Make contact is a gesture that you get from a corpse in a late game area, and its real only function, like within the game, is that if you use it in front of a non-hostile enemy in another area, you will get an item. 
As for what it actually means in like the world of the game, what make contact is, is you placing your right arm perpendicular to your body and your left arm facing directly upward, so you're describing a kind of 90 degree angle, and then you very slowly move your arms to the opposite position, so you end up with your right arm facing upwards and your left arm facing sideways. The corpse that you find make contact on is on a balcony facing the moon, and the item you get for using it later in the game is the rune for moon. So, as far as I can make out, make contact is you kind of describing the motion of the moon across the sky from one horizon to another. And since Bloodborne is full of people trying to make contact with various things in the sky, that seems to be what it is. Everyone knows who Vardy is. Um, Vardy is a Dark Souls YouTuber who did a lot of Dark Souls story videos. And, um, he did some Bloodborne stuff, but, like, Bloodborne fans are really obsessive and weird, so... Vardy's Bloodborne content is kind of not as foundational as you might think, because people who got into Bloodborne wanted, like, four-hour dissections of tiny little things, and, um, Vardy is more about little, self-contained, tragic stories. Beast Claw is a weapon that you unlock in the optional procedural dungeons. Because that's the only way to find it, a lot of people who either skip the dungeons or don't make much progress in them don't find Beast Claw, so that's why it's on the iceberg. It is a very weird weapon that puts you in a state where you constantly have a buff called Beasthood, and the way Beasthood works is the more damage you do, the more a little meter fills up, and the higher the meter is, the more damage you're doing, but the more damage you take, so it produces a sort of glass cannon effect. It also synergizes with a rune you find in the DLC to give you a different moveset, so it's actually a pretty deep and interesting weapon, but like I said, it's one a lot of people never see. Music Box vs. Gascoigne is just a reference to the way that if you talk to a little girl behind a window, who is Gascoigne's daughter, she will give you a music box, and if you use that music box in the Gascoigne fight, it will temporarily stun Father Gascoigne. The music box is pretty helpful if you're just starting out, because Gascoigne is really fast and really strong, and he is going to be the first or second boss that you encounter. The Cleric Beast shortcut is a door in the Cleric Beast's boss arena that you'd think would open up after beating the Cleric Beast and let you progress, but it never does. If you explore the map and kind of pay attention to where everything is lined up, that door actually leads into Cathedral Ward, and it has a little, like, entrance hall and everything, so if it weren't there, you could actually have walked from the Cleric Beast's arena through to Cathedral Ward, and that kind of sounds like something you really should be able to do, but can't. As far as we can tell, the reason this happens is that you were supposed to take that door initially, but there were loading issues with Cathedral Ward, so there was a chance that if you walked through that door, you would just end up in a void and fall into nothingness because the map wouldn't be there yet. So there is no way to open the door basically for safety reasons, and also, it's not even a door, it's, <laughs> it's not a door object, it's actually just a wall with the door painted on it, just to make absolutely sure you never open it. The guy in Ludwig's boss arena surviving refers to the character that you see 
in Ludwig's introductory cutscene, who is begging you for mercy and warning you that Ludwig's coming. He is not just in the cutscene, though. He's actually an NPC on the map, and like all NPCs, he has a health bar, and, like, he can die or he can survive. Since Ludwig is very fast and runs around the arena kind of randomly, he's almost certainly going to kill this little guy, but it's possible for him to survive the fight, and if he does, he does nothing. He just laughs to himself. Nightmares stacked on top of each other. This is something that the DLC introduces and sort of loops back around into the main game. So, in the Nightmare Frontier area that's in the base game, you can see the masts of ships poking through the mist at the base of the area, but it's not really clear what's below you, you just see the masts of the ships, and it was a big mystery, like, well, what, what is going on here? So the DLC then kind of introduces the concept that actually all these nightmare areas, even though they seem distinct from one another, are kind of spatially located in a vertical stack, sort of like, um, like saying turtles all the way down, only it's nightmares all the way up. The way it introduces this is that in the Hunter's Nightmare area in the DLC, if you take a little side path, an enemy that you've never seen before falls out of the sky with absolutely no explanation, and if you look upward, there's nowhere for her to have fallen from. And it seems sort of weird and random, but then later on in another area, you can look down from there and see that the Hunter's Nightmare is beneath you, even though you couldn't see this area from the Nightmare. And the enemy that falls from the sky is actually an enemy from that area. So what it's kind of doing is saying, oh, okay, right now you're above the area you were in before, you just couldn't see it. And the area you can see the Hunter's Nightmare from has a bunch of wrecked ships in it, so presumably they're the source of the ship masts and the Nightmare Frontier is above you now, you just can't see that. Also, since the nightmares have to be created by someone or something, if you look at how they're stacked, it's also chronological, with the most recent nightmare being at the bottom and the oldest nightmare being at the top, which also kind of implies that the top of the nightmare, as far as we're concerned, there might be other nightmares above that, and it just goes on and on into infinity. Yosefka is an imposter, so like, if we want to be completely pedantic, Yosefka isn't an imposter because you meet the real Yosefka at the start of the game, and she is who she says she is. What happens is that after you beat Father Gascoigne and enter Erden Chapel, if you go back to where you meet Yosefka, there is someone else in her place who is not necessarily pretending to be her, but pretending to have the same function of her as a, as a doctor. And while the Reliasefka is very, very adamant about not exposing her patients to infection and trying to heal them, the woman who replaces her is the opposite. She is saying, send as many people to me as you can, and she's doing that because she wants to experiment on them. And this opens up a little side quest where if you've got no conscience, you can start sending people to the imposter and she'll experiment on them and give you rare items in return. Brain of Mensis rune is what I was talking about under Make Contact. If you do make contact to the Brain of Mensis, you will get the moon rune from it. Um, it has to be in the abyss when you do it, though. If you try doing Make Contact uh, while it's on the bridge, you will not get you will not get the rune because it's actually tied to the physical place you're standing in rather than whether the uh, the brain is alive or not. 
Lesser amygdala is just the name given to the amygdala that are stuck to buildings. The boss is referred to as greater amygdala. They might seem like they're the same design, but the boss version doesn't have any tentacles around its face. So that's about it, though. Also, the boss version can die and the lesser ones are functionally immortal, which makes you wonder why those are the lesser ones. Okay, we are now touching the top of the iceberg and we have 60 insight. So 60 insight is the final breakpoint after which you stop getting environmental effects from insight. And that final effect is that you can hear Murgo crying. Even though that's the cap for different environmental changes, your frenzy and beasthood resistances will still scale relative to insight up until 99. The old load screen is just the word Bloodborne on a black background. This is kind of relevant because the previous two From games, which were Dark Souls and Dark Souls 2, they gave you item text when the game was loading, like they'd randomly show an item description to you instead of a loading screen. And because a lot of the story of those games is contained in those item descriptions, it helped people kind of familiarize themselves with the world. Bloodborne initially didn't do this, and a lot of people actually credit that with why they had a much stronger first impression of the game, because there's so many like weird twists in Bloodborne that running across a random item description that foreshadowed them on a loading screen would kind of have spoiled them. The Winter Lantern is made up of messengers, so the Winter Lantern is an enemy in the game that has a gigantic brain, and if you look closely at the brain, which most people don't because looking at the thing kills you, um, if you do this, you can see that its brain is made up of a bunch of the messengers sort of like squidged into a giant blob, kind of like a pile of melted jelly babies. The same thing is, is also true of the Mensis brain. What this actually means is kind of unclear, but like I've noticed that the, uh, the Nightmare Crawler is referenced later on, so we'll talk a bit more about messengers then. Queen Yarnum is a character who you will encounter twice if you stick to the game's critical path. She is a ghostly woman in a wedding dress with a blood-stained abdomen. She first appears after you beat Rom the Vacuous Spider on the lake um, when the moon comes down. And then you'll meet her again in the Nightmare of Mensis just before you fight the wet nurse. At this point, you don't really know anything about her, except that just based on like where you find her and what is happening, it's pretty clear that she is the mother of the child that has been kidnapped and is being used in the Mensis ritual. If you go into the Chalice Dungeons and make it all the way to the bottom, though, she is the final boss, and you meet her kind of in her prime, because the uh, Chalice Dungeons are sort of outside of linear time in a way that the game doesn't really explain, but is also the only way that they make any sense at all. And um, yeah, you meet her when she is the Queen of Thumaru, and her name is Yarnum. Uncanny weapon variants are just weapons that have slightly different blood gem slots. They come in two versions, there's Uncanny and Lost, and you can only get them in the Chalice Dungeons. The way you find them is different depending on whether it's a base game or DLC weapon. The base game weapons are just found as treasure in treasure coffins throughout the chalices, and you don't need to have the base weapon to find the Uncanny or Lost variants. 
Whereas if it's a DLC weapon, you find them in the chalice messenger baths that sometimes spawn that you can buy things from. If you go to those and you go to the weapon tab, they will have the uncanny and lost variants, but only of weapons that you've already got. They, they didn't integrate the DLC into the chalices very well, unfortunately. Fishing Hamlet Slug Farm is just an area in the Fishing Hamlet that you'll you'll run through it a bunch of times. You won't miss it if you've done the area because you have to you have to go there. What's um I think the reason it's on the iceberg is that it is may not be apparent that it's a slug farm. It might just think this room has a lot of slugs in it. But um no, yeah, they they are farming the slugs. Basically the story behind the Fishing Hamlet is that they were like a normal fishing village and then they encountered this eldritch slug whale thing called Koz and they started farming the parasites that they found on her body. So that's what they're doing there. That's uh, why the ships are all wrecked and everything because they've given up fishing. They just um, live off slugs now. Hunter Rune in the Fishing Hamlet refers to the corpse that you see at the very beginning of the area. You'll notice that it is decapitated and hung in such a way that it resembles the hunter's mark that your character is branded with. This is true of a lot of the corpses in the game. They are hung in this position, and there's actually a whole video on that uh, on this very channel. Berserk is a manga by the unfortunately recently passed Kentaro Miura, and it is a it is a favorite of Hidetaka Miyazaki to the point that like everything he does ends up with all of these berserk references in it. And by references, I mean he just seems to copy bits and pieces of berserk and put them in things. It's a lot more obvious in Demon Souls and Dark Souls because those already had that like fantasy medieval setting. Bloodborne setting kind of lends itself less to that, although if you look at like the the executioner enemies are quite clearly based on Basuzo from Berserk, and then you've also got little plot points like the human sacrifice to summon an eclipse. There's also like the the hunter's mark looks like and also kind of works like the brand of sacrifice from Berserk. And there's like little things like I think the design of the amygdala with the very, very long arms and fingers is maybe a little influenced by Void from Berserk. But yeah, if you want a manga that influenced Bloodborne, I would actually recommend looking at Junji Ito's Uzumaki. Dura knows the doll. Does Dura know the doll? Um, this is a little confusing. Basically, Dura will talk to you as though he understands that, like, hunters have the ability to dream, and that the way that they dream is kind of giving them a form of immortality. Like, he just, he accepts this, he talks to you, like, he knows you're going to keep coming back and coming back and he can't kill you, and he's sort of begging you to, like, you have this night to dream, so don't waste it. So this implies that he's been to the hunter's dream and consequently would know the doll, but he never mentions the doll, and... I'm saying this, I'm being a little pedantic here, because Eileen actually does explicitly mention the doll. So, Eileen knows the doll, Dura may or may not know the doll. The church causing the scourge of old Yarnum is something that the game, for all intents and purposes, does straight up say happened, but 
it does it through a bunch of little, like, implications. So, the Beast Blood pellet item is something that the Healing Church make. They don't tell you that they make it, but you find it in the church research hall, and the way that you actually unlock them as something you can buy is through using the choir's badge. And the places you find beast blood pellets, excluding nightmares, are Old Yarnum and Forbidden Woods. So if you go to Forbidden Woods, there is a guy there who will give you beast blood pellets, and it's sort of ambiguous as to who he is, but he is essentially like a pusher. He's like pushing beast blood on you, and you find tons of beast blood lying around that area, so it's like he seems to be kind of pushing beast blood on the people in Forbidden Woods. And even though his allegiances are ambiguous, what he's wearing is a garb that we're told the Healing Church wear to disguise themselves and blend in. So we have evidence there of the Healing Church deliberately infecting somewhere that's like far enough away from them that it won't affect them with beast blood. And then there's also references on the antidote to like a mysterious illness that no one understood that suddenly took hold of Old Yarnum, and the Healing Church kind of stepped in to fix it. So basically the implication here is that the Healing Church found this older, sort of poorer, less significant part of Yarnum, and deliberately infected everyone there with this beast blood to see what would happen. And um, the area that you run through is what happened. Nightmare Crawlers having messengers under them is, like, the same deal as the Winter Lantern. Um, when they raise up, you can see that there's this sort of congealed mess of messengers underneath them. This makes a little more kind of in-game thematic sense than the Winter Lanterns, though, because if you look at the design of the Crawlers, they look a lot like Koz. And when you see Koz's corpse, she's been cut open and her child has been taken from inside of her womb. So the crawlers sort of function as a little like manifestation of what happened to cause, like a little sort of creature that's born out of trauma. So the placement of the messengers makes sense there in a way that like on the winter lanterns, it's just sort of a little bit baffling. Dark Souls 1 DLC is a reference to Possibly two things. Um, the first is that the Artorius of the Abyss DLC features a character called Marvelous Chester, who, if you talk to him, tells you that he was basically snatched from somewhere else in the future and taken back to Lordran. And if you look at Chester's design, he is wearing a top hat and a very long coat, which makes him look way more like a Bloodborne character than a Dark Souls character. So this leads to this theory that, like, Chester is some sort of Bloodborne Easter egg that they put in the game to kind of tease that Bloodborne was coming. The other thing it could be referring to is that old Bloodborne Alpha assets were actually found inside the files for Artorius of the Abyss because they were working on them in parallel. This might also explain what the deal with Chester is, because they were probably experimenting with, like, the cloth physics and materials they were going to use in Bloodborne, and that influenced the design of Chester, rather than Chester being this, like, deliberate sort of Easter egg thing. 
Abandoned Old Workshop is German's Abandoned Old Workshop. It is an optional area in the game that you find by falling down a series of fairly dangerous drops inside the Healing Church Workshop, and it is the building that the Hunter's Dream is a sort of idealized memory of. It's very small, it's actually smaller than the Hunter's Dream, and there's no enemies there, but there are a bunch of items that fill in the story. The Bone Ash Hunter set is something that, like the Beast Claw, you can only find if you explore the procedural dungeons. It is an armor set with a big witch hat, and it has very high physical and fire defense, so it's worth tracking down. Alright, we are now below the surface of the water with our buddy Howard. Day 1 patch workshop note refers to a difference in the item descriptions that was patched in on a day 1 patch, so even people who played Bloodborne like the day it came out likely didn't see this because the game patched as soon as they put it in, but if you like uninstall the game, get an original release copy, disconnect your PS4 from the internet and then play it, you will get slightly different text on the third umbilical cord that you find in the workshop. So of the four cords in the game, the workshop cord does not give you a point of origin or like mention anyone who was involved in finding it or searching for it. It just says that it was responsible for beckoning the moon. But the day one patch specifies that it came from the child of the Kanehurst Filebloods. And that's interesting because if you factor that back in, a lot of parts of the game that seem like vague and weird around Kanehurst sort of click together. The research hall is Bergenworth. No, it's not. Um, I think this is a typo. The research hall is the clock tower cathedral area from the DLC, and it's pretty obviously not Bergenworth because it's it's in the Grand Cathedral in Yharnam. Um, there is an area called the Lecture Hall, though, and the Lecture Hall is Bergenworth. Basically, the Lecture Hall is floating in a void, but if you look at what is there and who is there and, like, what the notes are talking about and everything, it's pretty clearly supposed to be Bergenworth. But, like, a part of Bergenworth that disappeared got sucked into the void somehow, which, like, sounds fine on the surface, but the problem is that when you go to Bergenworth, there's nowhere for the hall to have actually gone because Bergenworth is tiny and most of it is a lake. The technical answer is that this literally is part of Bergenworth, they are on the same map, it's just that they make the lecture hall invisible so you can't see it, but they are the same map and the reason they're the same map is that there's an earlier version of Bergenworth that's a much, much bigger building. It's much more like a university campus than someone's study. And that would have had a freestanding lecture building that was just there. It wasn't in the nightmare. So basically, when they pared Bergenworth down, they moved the lecture hall area to this, like, weird void. And it's also worth pointing out that the Japanese item descriptions straight up call this the Bergenworth Lecture Hall. So, it's not even a question in that version of the game, it's something that was introduced by the localization. Music Box versus Bell is a very odd interaction that you can get in the Chalice Dungeons. 
Basically, in the chalices, you sometimes find these really big bells hanging from the ceiling of rooms. And if you strike the bell with a weapon or a projectile, it will ring and attract enemies. The weird part is that if you use Gascoigne's music box in front of the bell, it also behaves like it's being struck. I don't exactly know how this works, but I think it's probably that the way the music box functions is that it's a very, very specific AoE attack that only affects Gascoigne. But if you use it near the bell, like, there's some flag on the bell that's making it respond to just any attack it picks up. So, the music box is triggering the bell. This would also explain something people report happening, where if they use the music box on the Murgo's wet nurse boss, she will sidestep. I think that's the same deal. I think her AI is picking up that, like, the music box is doing a projectile damage attack and she's trying to dodge it. I'm not 100%, but, like, that sort of makes sense to me. DMC Redgrave is a friend of mine and a friend of Sin's, and he has been on this channel many, many times. He was the first person, in at least in the English-speaking fan community, to kind of collate everything about Bloodborne from, like, all the item descriptions and dialogue and everything into a big kind of story guide called The Pale Blood Hunt, and because it was the first of its kind, it became this foundational thing when people were discussing Bloodborne's story and how everything fitted together. After Redgrave finished with that, he moved to YouTube and made a series of videos called Little Things in Yarnum, where rather than talking about the story as a whole, he went into like little tiny details like flowers and coffins and things like that. He stopped making those a while ago, but he's continued to hang around the fandom, and like I said, um, he's on this channel a fair bit, and um, his old videos are still up, as is The Pale Blood Hunt. Shadow Over Innsmouth is a short story by Howard over there, and it is about an isolated insular fishing village where the people are mutating into half-human, half-fish things called the Deep Ones, and if that sounds a lot like the fishing hamlet area from Bloodborne, they agree with you because the internal name for the fish people is Deep Ones. If you think, oh, that also sounds a lot like the Mibu village from Sekiro, the internal name for them is Innsmouth. Areas unaffected by Blood Moon. Alright, so what happens after you beat Rom the Vacuous Spider in Bergenworth? is that a huge red moon appears in the sky, which we can assume is also at Bergenworth, and then you pass out and you wake up in Yahagol and discover that the same moon is now hanging over the city and it's basically wrecked everything and turned people into beasts and stuff. So you might think, oh, I wonder what this big moon did to the rest of the game, but um, it really only affects the Yarnum areas and not even all of them. Like, it won't affect old Yarnum at all. So, like, Bergenworth, Hemwick, Forbidden Woods, Canehurst, they're just not affected at all by the Red Moon. They just keep the nighttime skybox and nothing changes. Project Beast is one of the fairly large number of working titles that Bloodborne had but it was the title that was used on a leaked trailer that was the first look we really got at how Bloodborne was going to look and play. 
And because of that, that build of Bloodborne is kind of colloquially referred to as Project Beast, even though it had like six different names at that point. Madman's Knowledge is a Slug refers to the way that the graphic for Madman's Knowledge shows a skull breaking open and this like sort of eldritch energy breaking through. And if you look at the design of the energy, it's a picture of a slug. The game makes a point of associating Eldritch Knowledge with slugs, so it's why you get, like, the Empty Phantasm Shell, and the Augur of Ibriatus, and a Call Beyond in the Black Sky Eye. They've all got slugs all over them. Skybox change after Gascoigne refers to the way the skybox... Well, it doesn't really change after Gascoigne, technically. It changes when you enter Erden Chapel. The thing is that unlike the change from evening to night or night to the red moon, it's not terribly dramatic, so it's easy to miss that it's happened, but the skybox and lighting are different, and that also triggers a number of events, like uh, Yosefka being replaced by the imposter. Yarnum's map geometry doesn't line up refers to the way that the game just cheats space within Yarnum for a number of reasons. It's not like terribly egregious though considering this came after Dark Souls 2 where you can get an elevator from the top of a tower to the base of a volcano that you couldn't see from the tower. The best example is probably the path to Old Yarnum where you go down a bunch of stairs and pathways that if you look at them from outside just like straight up don't exist. There's also some places where the interior of a building will extend beyond its exterior, and you just don't notice from the outside because they cull it. Other than that, though, it, it lines up extremely well. Hail the Nightmare lyrics. Hail the Nightmare is the hymn that you hear being sung in Yahagul prior to the Red Moon, and it has lyrics that are in Latin. The lyrics were never officially released, but there have been attempts to transcribe it, and what I would reckon to be the most accurate transcription is by a friend of mine. She is Italian, so I trust her ability to hear Latin, basically. I won't actually read them all out, but basically the lyrics are kind of counterpointing someone talking about being cursed with references to a sleeping slug and something silver that is in dark waters. This is another piece of recurring imagery that we get throughout the game, where the search for enlightenment is likened to trying to see something that is on the other side of a cloudy or dark body of water. So yes, yeah, silver in the dark water, um, similar to Mikolash talking about the lake of mud obscuring his sight, and the way that Provost Willem, when you meet him, is looking at a reflected moon in the dark waters of the lake outside Bergenworth. Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is another story by Howard, and it is about visiting a series of, like, alternate realities that you reach by dreaming, and the minds that are there have the ability to kind of affect what is happening in them, so it's sort of where Bloodborne gets its cosmology of dreamlands from. The creatures described in Kadath are also the basis of a number of Bloodborne's monsters. In particular, the silver beasts that you meet in the Nightmare are patterned after creatures in Dreamcrest of Unknown Kadath that are called Gugs.
the Birkenworth basement uh, does not exist. Basically, there is a trap door on the floor of Bergenworth that presumably maybe led to a basement at some point, but um, it doesn't anymore. There's nowhere to get it to open. And even if you did open it, there's nothing underneath it. It looks like there was a large underground area in Bergenworth, like in an earlier version of the game. The Tomb Prospectors are a community on Reddit and Discord who are dedicated to exploring and testing and mapping out how things work in the procedural dungeons. And they have actually mapped out all possible permutations of the dungeons at this point. So if you have any questions about the procedural dungeons, head over to Tomb Prospectors because they absolutely will know the answer. Lance McDonald is a data miner and hacker who has looked into both the retail build of Bloodborne and some, like, pre-retail builds of Bloodborne and dug up, like, bits and pieces of data in order to restore either partially or completely material that was cut from the finished game. So things like the doll's old voice acting... Um, enemies that aren't there anymore, areas you can't get to anymore, and that's all on his YouTube channel if you want to check it out. Saw Cleaver only weapon with 2R2 animations. Yeah, this is really, really odd. It's a very strange piece of trivia. Basically, every weapon in the game will have like one R2 animation, like a heavy attack, but the Saw Cleaver has a unique kind of R2 follow-up if you use it after you've done a charged R2 attack, like, you get a different follow-up attack, and I don't know enough about, like, hitboxes or AR to know if it's any good or ever useful. But yeah, it does indeed have two R2 attacks, and the other weapons don't. Pale Blood, oh god, um, there's a reference to Pale Blood further down the iceberg, so I'll talk about it then, but, like, I'll just say now, Pale Blood is something that is, I think obfuscated by the people who obsess over it because as far as I'm concerned like Pale Blood is is a very basic like piece of misdirection that the game just tells you about up front so I don't know we'll talk about that when we get there. Jerks on Frontier that's me yeah hi I'm um I'm on this iceberg so I made a bunch of Bloodborne videos uh, around like 2015-2016 and then I sort of dropped off the map a bit and um, reappeared on this channel where you're hearing this. There was some like half decent stuff there, but at the same time, like I was in a very, very bad state um, mentally and physically at the time. And I sort of didn't want to um, admit to myself why the themes of Bloodborne were really getting to me. So I dodged a lot of stuff I think is much more interesting and that's what I've been talking about here and I think those videos are much better than the old ones even though they have like in some cases like five percent of the views. The old videos are delisted um they're still on the channel in a playlist but you can't find them by searching for them. All right further down the iceberg we are at brain socket here. Rom's leg sockets. Yeah she has leg sockets um if you were wondering why Rom the Vacuous Spider looks like a caterpillar with a whole lot of little legs under her body, 
but summons like tiny versions of herself that have eight legs sticking out the side like a spider. That's because she did used to have eight legs like a spider and they slotted in those little holes on the side of her body. And you can see how that fitted together still if you look at the dead corpse that might be wrong, might not be wrong, it's never explained, on the Altar of Despair. It's got the spider legs. Hemwick is the source of bone marrow ash is just like, I don't know why this is so deep on the iceberg. It's not, like, confusing. If you look at the bone marrow ash item, it just straight up says that it came from Hemwick. Um, something I guess you can sort of miss because the game doesn't signpost it is that Hemwick is a gigantic crematorium. Those little houses you see with all the smoke billowing out the top, the smoke is there because they're ovens. And the little pipes that you see sticking out of the wall, the smoke's coming out of those because they're ovens. And um, presumably the like sort of goop you find uh, on the side of the pipe is like residual melted person. Who wrote Seek Pale Blood? Oh my god. Alright. Before the game even starts, before we have created a character, before we do anything, the Blood Minister says to us, Oh yes, Pale Blood. Well, you've come to the right place. So clearly he is responding to us, and we have mentioned Pale Blood to him, and he is saying, well, if you're looking for Pale Blood, this is the place to go. So we came to Yarnum knowing about something called Pale Blood, maybe not what it was, but we knew to seek Pale Blood. That's why we came there. When we wake up from the ministration, we are told explicitly that we have amnesia, and all we really have to go off is this handwritten note that says, Seek Pale Blood to transcend the hunt. And when we ask people in Yarnum about Pale Blood, they don't know what it is. So all evidence points to that's our note, and it's why we came to Yarnum. We might not have written it, but it's almost certainly our note. Nightmare Frontier is Lauren. Yeah, again, this is something that, like, it's very, very, very heavily implied to the point where they may as well have outright said it, but because they don't outright say it, people continue to, like, argue about this. So, Lauren is somewhere that we explore the ruins of, and as we're doing that and learning more about Lauren, the game is constantly comparing Lauren to Yarnum by saying, oh, Lauren also had a beast outbreak and Lauren had a medical church. The medical church may have made it worse. The means by which we access Lauren is a bunch of stuff that we find in the Nightmare Frontier. And we also find that there's enemies in the Nightmare Frontier that are straight up referred to as being from Lauren if we visit them in the Chalice Dungeons. And then when we go to the Nightmare of Mensis, which we're just going to say is part of the Nightmare Frontier, basically, because it's got the same enemies and everything. Um, when we go there, you can see that, like, the big castle that dominates it is very, very similar to the Healing Church's Grand Cathedral. So, like, there's beasts, there's a big bridge, there's the big mutated ogre people, the skyline is dominated by this big glowing thing that's kind of like the astral clock, and also kind of like the astral clock, there's a giant brain inside. So, the implication is that the nightmare areas are kind of to Lauren what the hunter's nightmare is to Yarnum. It's this, like, 
distorted sort of trauma memory that's been given physical form, but because we just found it without context for what Lauren was, it just seems like this weird hellscape. And of course what this basically means is that the next time this all plays out, humans will probably find the hunter's nightmare and not know what it is. And that will be their nightmare frontier, and this will all happen again. Vadi Vidya plagiarism is six-year-old e-drama revolving around people I am personal friends with, and I can tell you right now that they've moved on, and they'd really like it if everyone else also moved on. Plot is centered around the Mensa's ritual, is basically why our hunt is different from the other hunts that came before. So our hunt starts off like quote-unquote normally, um, that's why German is like, hey, go kill a few beasts and don't think about this. But what ultimately ends up happening is that because we're hunting on the night that the School of Mensis perform their ritual, we get caught up in that. And that's why like all this weird shit goes down and the city is functionally destroyed by the end of it. I'm not really sure what Alpha Skybox refers to, um, the Alpha Skybox is different. Like, you start the game at night, but there's also, like, a really nice, um, daylight effect. You do see the daylight effect in-game if you wake up from the Yarnum Sunrise ending, but that, that lighting exists in other maps. Like, it's, it's used in Hemwick in the Project Beast trailer. So, yeah, um, this is a, a remnant of when, like, you were going to start the game in Hemwick, and it would have been the day, basically. Whereas now we start the game in Yarnum, and it's I think it's canonically it's canonically 3 p.m. based on internal notes. O Flora of the Moon is a prayer that the doll says, and firstly, it's random that she will say it, but it is also only randomly going to happen if certain other factors are lined up. So it's something that people, like, never hear either because they just never hear it or because they find themselves in a game state where it can't possibly happen. Basically, the doll is asking something she calls Flora of the Moon of the Dream to watch over the hunter during the hunt and keep them safe. This is another situation where there's a fairly obvious, I think, answer, which is that Flora is the moon presence because the moon presence is something that is literally of the moon of the dream and is watching over the hunter. And there would have been a line from German that confirmed this, but they didn't use it. Um, but like I said, um, nothing else really fits the description of being of the moon of the dream and watching over the hunter. Other than the messengers, but she actually addresses the messengers separately. So, the simplest explanation, and what would have been like a cut and dried explanation, is that the doll is praying to the moon presence. The doll bleeds pale blood. Um, the doll bleeds like a weird grey fluid if you hit her. So I don't really like, you know, people endlessly looking around the game for examples of stuff that could be literal pale blood. The game even outright says dolls don't bleed, so... Yanamite in intro has blood drunk eye. He does. Um, if you look at the Yanamite's eye, which is sort of hard to miss because the camera zooms in on it, 
when he's held at gunpoint, he has the sort of collapsed pattern on it that the Eye of the Blood Drunk Hunter has. And um, fans speculate this could be because the Yarnamite in the intro is a Blood Drunk Hunter. The Labyrinth Mole is a really rare enemy that you find in the Chalice Dungeons. It's not the rarest, but it's the rarest that, like, has a unique model and everything. You can find rarer ones, but they're, like, variants that will either be, like, a bigger variant, or it'll have a different buff, or it'll have slightly different weapons, or something like that. But the Labyrinth Mole was a wholly unique creature, and it was discovered a few months after the game actually launched, which led to this sort of resurgence of interest in, like, well, what else is is down in the Chalice Dungeons? Because you can share dungeons, you can pretty easily find one that's got a Labyrinth Mole in it. And, um, yeah, they're, they're cute. Chalice Illusory Walls. So, unlike Demon Souls, Dark Souls, and Dark Souls 2, there aren't any illusory walls or hidden passages in the base game of Bloodborne, by which I mean, like, above ground in Yharnam, but they do exist in the chalices, and because they don't exist outside the chalices, people sort of don't think to look for them sometimes, because they're not used to thinking of them as being a Bloodborne thing, but they do exist. All right, Amygdala tier, let's go. Ariana is from Kanehurst. Um, this is literally just part of the plot. I don't know why it's this deep on the iceberg. Basically, Ariana is wearing a very distinct dress that you find a copy of in Kanehurst, and if you examine it, it straight up says, like, this is a dress that is worn by people who are from Kanehurst. Ariana's blood vial also says that, like, there's something about her blood that is strange and corrupted, which fits with the Kanehurst vile bloods. And her heritage and her bloodline actually play a crucial point in the story if you do rescue her, because her heritage as someone from Kanehurst is what allows Formless Erden to use her to give birth to his child. So, like, this is a really important part of the story. I don't know why it's as low on the iceberg. If you want a low iceberg um, Ariana thing, I would say that the kid with blonde hair in one of the Kanehurst portraits, that might actually be Ariana, because uh, if you assume she was rescued from the castle as a child. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's iceberg material. Bloodborne Art Book. Again, not entirely sure why this is so low on the iceberg. Um, the art book is an art book. Um, <laughs> it's got all the Bloodborne concept art in it. The importance of the art book, I think, really, is that you can get official names for enemies because they're written next to the concept art of them. Because the art book didn't come out at the same time as the game, fandom sort of invented names for certain enemies that caught on and like to this day people who were involved in the fandom in like 2015 will sometimes call enemies by weird names like um bound widows or mego zombies or something that's just like a fan name that kind of stuck yarnum was built by fumarians is another one of those things that's like a fairly integral part of the world and is 
is essentially explicitly stated. It's just that they don't use the words Yarnum was built by Thumerians. Basically, the chalice dungeons that you explore, those are the catacombs that are underneath Yarnum. Like, they're just historical ruins that the city is built above. And the more you explore them, the more it fleshes out this story of this race of basically, like, underground vampire people who were called the Thumerians. And you can find little bits and pieces of, like, Thumerian designs and Thumerian traditions and things that are in the dungeons and also above ground in Yharnam. So, and you also learn at the very base of the dungeons that the name Yharnam is a Thumerian word. So basically, the Thumerians just built up and up and up until they popped out of the surface, and that city over the generations became Yharnam, and that's why Yharnam is full of weird people who are obsessed with blood. Music Box versus Mogo's Wet Nurse is something that I already talked about. Basically, if you use the Music Box on Mogo's Wet Nurse, she will sometimes sidestep, and like I said, um, I think this is because the game considers the music box to be a kind of attack. So when the wet nurse sees you using it, she attempts to dodge. The reason like this became significant is that the wet nurse's theme that plays during the boss fight is the music from the music box, which led to this whole theory that like, well, she's sidestepping because there's some connection. But like I said, I'm fairly sure it is just because... She is trying to dodge an attack that doesn't exist. Shadows of Yarnum are Yarnum's bodyguards. Yeah, this is another... It's a little piece of, like, structured misdirection that the game throws at you that I think some people just think is random, but it's not. Basically, you encounter these strange robed figures called the Shadows of Yarnum, and if it's your first time playing, you're likely going to assume, oh, Shadows of Yarnum. They are Shadows of the City of Yarnum. Then after the shadows, you encounter Queen Yarnum, and then much, much later on in the game, you encounter the shadows again, followed by Queen Yarnum again. So, at this point, you don't realize that her name is Queen Yarnum, but once you do, it all sort of snaps into place, because like, oh, the shadows of Yarnum are actually the shadows of Queen Yarnum. They are like her... Agents slash bodyguards. The Japanese script differences are something that only really matter if you are having a very, very in-depth discussion of something. They don't really at all impact on your understanding of the basic story or the basic characters. This channel actually has quite a lot of videos covering them if you are interested. Rom is a she is something that Miyazaki initially confirmed, at least the English-speaking fandom, in an interview that he gave where he was talking about Rom and calling her she. It's also worth noting that her Japanese name is, it's not like Rom the Space Knight, it's Roma, like the tomato. And Roma is a much more feminine-sounding name that... I think they probably didn't go with because Roma is also an ethnicity. Impurity Rune depicts a bloodletting is like one reading of the rune. Um, Basically, the Impurity Rune sort of has these little like dots along the side that 
you might interpret as drops of blood. Um, I think like the Carol rune designs in general tend to be a lot more abstract than like just literal sort of simplified drawings of things. Lawrence is the bloodletting beast is um, something that caused a lot of grief <laughs> early on. Basically, you encounter Lawrence's skull, and it's clearly a transformed beast skull with a fracture along one side of it. And then way later on, you encounter a boss called the Bloodletting Beast that has a fracture along the same part of its head. And then even later on, you encounter it again, and it's been decapitated, and the head has been removed. So it's another one of those situations where, like, this thing is all but said outright, and because it's not actually fully literally said outright, people get angry and continue to, like, argue and argue and argue about it. The DLC made it a little more confusing by adding a Lawrence fight, but the fight happens in this nightmare hellscape, and the Lawrence you're fighting is, like, a thing with lava for blood, and one doesn't really contradict the other because there's plenty of characters who you meet in one state in the waking world and then a different kind of transformed state in the nightmare. Sekiro Tease is a reference to the character of old hunter Yamamura that they added in the DLC. Basically, this is similar to the Dark Souls 1 DLC with Chester situation. Yamamura being a samurai and like someone from the East who dresses in traditional like Japanese looking garb is thought to be a like deliberate sort of foreshadowing of what they were doing in Sekiro. Also similar to Chester, like it could be an intentional little tease, but it could also just be that they were working on both and kind of had samurai on the brain. Either way, of course, he does still foreshadow Sekiro. Um, Sekiro also being a game where uh, people's bodies are full of centipedes, and there is a mysterious village where they turn into fish. Developer chalices are chalice dungeons that exist in the game data, but are not accessible through normal means. It is possible to access them using a save editor, and because of the way Bloodborne handles chalices, it's possible to, once you've accessed them, just share them on the server like any other dungeon. They're kind of dangerous to mess around with though, because some of them can corrupt your save data, and some of them will only work properly on certain revisions of the game. They're mostly just rooms hanging in voids and are impossible to actually make progress in, but they will contain, like, unused enemies and unused assets and stuff, so if you're curious, um, look them up because they have been documented in screenshot form on the Bloodborne wiki by myself and a few others. Kanehurst statue's missing limbs refers to the knight statues that are on the sides of the stairs as you approach Queen Annalise's throne room. If you pay attention to them, they are all missing their right leg. This might seem like a weird glitch, but German is also missing his right leg, and there's an item in the DLC that says that there is a Yarnum superstition that when you start transforming into a beast, 
it starts in your right leg and moves up. So this does appear to all be interconnected. And um, depending on your tolerance for like stuff that was removed from the game, there is an unused uh, Kanehurst Knight looking character who is missing his right leg as well. And he has a wooden leg and rides a horse. The double-barreled shotgun is the weapon that the hunter is using in, like, really, really old footage of the game. It's not a weapon that was ever actually, like, properly made as a weapon, though. It's not something that player characters could actually equip and use, it's just something that exists for testing purposes. Amygdala, region of the brain. So, the name for Amygdala in Japanese is Amandos, as in almonds, because its head looks like an almond. And the uh, the localizers, I guess, wisely thought that was a silly name for an eldritch abomination, so they changed it to amygdala, because that is a region of the brain that is also called the almond, and also, like, governs fear and stuff, so... It sort of thematically fits still. And, um, yeah, Patch's voice actor pronounces it Amigdala. And because he's the only person who ever says it out loud, we've just adopted Amigdala as the thing's name. Which is weirdly helpful in these discussions, because I can say Amigdala, and I can say Amygdala, and you know what I mean. Number of missing scholars in Yahagul equals number of amygdala in Yahagul. Um, I've heard this a lot. It probably lines up. I've never actually gone and counted. I'm not sure what this is getting at, though, if it's implying that, like, each scholar summoned an amygdala, or, like, each scholar became an amygdala, each scholar was taken by a separate amygdala. Um, I, I don't quite know. Yahagul's timeline is sort of a mess, but I'm of the opinion that, um, those scholars, like, mummified themselves quite a while before the amygdala showed up. But, like, the, the alternative is also possible. Logarius is a Thumerian. So, Marta Logarius, the guy who led the Healing Church's attack on Kanehurst, Looks a lot like a Thumerian and has a moveset that is very, very close to a boss called Thumerian Elder. So this leads to the question of, like, is Ligarius supposed to be a Thumerian? Or is he just a guy from the Healing Church who was very, very tall? Given that the Church are using Thumerian guards in the present, it's not, like, out of the realms of possibility. It's just really, really weird. It also opens up a discussion about a Thumerian civil war that's sort of implied in the Chalice Dungeons, but I'm not going to go into now because it's like, it's not even on the iceberg levels of obsessive detail, like, reading. The Kanehurst portraits are, again, like, I don't know why they're this deep on the iceberg, because you can't really miss them if you do Kanehurst. I think what it's getting at here is, like, the sort of... The way you can use the portraits to trace the history of Kanehurst, because what they 
depict as like a bunch of different sort of Kanehurst ancestors. And over time, you can see Kanehurst kind of change from like very, very Thumerian looking people who wear very like ornate plate mail armor through to what are basically just humans. Which fills in the history of Kanehurst and also fills in kind of the history of Yarnum because it's what happened there as well. The 60 FPS port is something that Lance McDonald, who I talked about earlier, has made. Um, he can't distribute it, obviously, but basically he got the game to run in 720p 60 FPS as opposed to 1080p 30 FPS. Fans were kind of holding out for a PS5 performance patch that would have let Bloodborne run at 60fps on PS5, but that has not happened and doesn't look like it's going to happen. Moon Presence behind everything. Is she? If we're just talking about the events that occur in Yharnam that we're dragged into, that is almost wholly driven by the Mensis ritual, which is... Mikolash trying to contact Koz? The Moon Presence is not relevant to any of that. She's relevant to us as a hunter because she's why we become a hunter and she's kind of what's keeping us alive for the duration of the hunt. But um, she is not behind everything. If you want to get super into like attempting to figure out a motivation, it seems like she is just waiting for Lawrence to come back with a child, but that's not going to happen because Lawrence is dead. So basically she's just overseeing us. She will take a role in the story at the very, very end. If we defeat German, that causes her to appear before us. And if we've used the three third chords, she will fight us, but prior to that, um, I don't think you can really say she's behind anything. Her reaction to us taking the three-third chords actually seems to be almost like a panic reaction, like she's not expecting this to happen. So, yeah, I don't think um, she's really behind anything. Okay, we are now on the Guidance Rune tier of the iceberg, and um, it's the very bottom of the iceberg, but it keeps going, I guess, into the uh, abyssal depths. The Choir Orphanage to create great ones? Um, I don't think so. So the Choir Orphanage is basically a school for gifted children. The idea was that the Healing Church would raise a generation of scholars who could carry on their work after they were gone and those people became the choir and they were raised in an orphanage because they were orphans. The choir are, I think, pretty categorically not trying to create great ones because despite being younger, they are a more cautious and conservative faction than the rest of the healing church, in particular School of Mansus. And this is because they saw the generations who came before them trying to make these big evolutionary leaps and fucking it up. So they don't want to repeat that. The Celestials in Lumenflower Gardens might be transformed members of the choir, but the 
purpose of the orphanage was not to create those. Um, the choir are just really big into astrology and being in touch with the sky. So it makes sense that they would take on the form of a little, like, celestial alien that's in touch with the um, arcane cosmos. But the orphanage is not, like, a Great One factory, and they actually have they have their own Great One, Ibriatus. Um, they're sort of happy with her for now, I think. Graven Witch's Abode, I literally don't know what that means. Um, there's a lot of bodies in Witch's Abode, but there are no, like, graves. There is a sort of Pieta design on one of the walls, so it's possible that it's referring to that, but in that case, um, it's just an altar. Messengers are unborn fetuses of the Mensis ritual? I don't even know where to start with this. Um, I'll just say that, like, messengers clearly predate the Mensis ritual, which happens about two-thirds of the way through the game. So I don't know what... No. No. I think it is, like, very likely that we are supposed to at least in part, view the messengers as either unborn or stillborn children's ghosts that sort of linger on in a, a childlike form. But as for them specifically being the mensis ritual, that like literally just doesn't make any sort of sense whatsoever, because as I said, the, the mensis ritual is something that happens like during the course of the game, whereas messengers are around like from before the game starts, and also, like, probably thousands of years before the game started. Archibald is Pal is a theory that comes from Pal dropping the Spark Hunter badge, which it says... which it says Archibald made for his friends, which sort of implies Pal isn't Archibald, because, um... Archibald made them for other people. Archibald is described as being obsessed with the sparks that emanated from the hide of the Dark Beasts, which Paul is, and um, he's tried to replicate it. So the idea of Archibald turning into a like a Dark Beast thing is entirely like possible. But um, I think the biggest issue there is that Paul's name is Paul. Not Archibald. And I don't know why Archibald would turn into a beast and then change his name. The issue is, like, the name, because if Paul were just called, like, the Undead Dark Beast or the Storm Beast or something, but the idea that, like, Archibald becomes a beast and then the beast is just given a different person's name rather than a descriptor or still being called Archibald is, um, it's a little strange. Tier 3 Guidance Rune is a, is an ordeal. Um, basically, Tier 3 Guidance exists in the game. It exists in the data, and if you have it, it will work. But there is no way to actually obtain it through normal gameplay. And the reason this became such an ordeal is that in the strategy guide that came with the old hunters, 
they said you could find it in the chalice dungeons, so people looked and looked and looked forever. Until people actually looked at the data and were like, yeah, it's not there. That's one interpretation, I guess, is something that Miyazaki said in the interview that was in the Future Press Bloodborne Guide. And it became kind of a meme uh, whenever anything didn't really make sense. Uh, people would just quote Miyazaki saying, that's one interpretation, I guess. Warp chairs were how you went to and from the hunter's dream before the game had lamps in it. There would be chairs, you would sit in them, and you would kind of astral project yourself from the chair to the hunter's dream that way. This would have added another layer to Yaha Gul if they'd kept it, because when you go into Yaha Gul now, you see all these corpses strapped into chairs, and it just seems like weird and creepy, but if you'd been using the same kind of chair to go back and forth from the dream, it would sort of foreshadow what was going on there and just add this extra layer of, like, what the fuck is going on to that area. Pile Escape from Yahagul is a little, like, fan theory that explains the tunnel that you escape from Yahagul through, because um, the tunnel leads from a prison cell to where Pal's body is, and the theory goes that, like, Pal was transforming in the prison cell and then just burrowed through the wall and got out that way. So that's why there's this, like, very rough tunnel that leads out of the prison cell to where Pal is. Lawrence is depicted in Kanehurst is, like, a really interesting little detail that is not a weird sort of fan theory, but it's it's very sort of obscure. Um, one of the portraits in Kanehurst is of a middle-aged bearded man who is wearing these sort of like red robes. It's not something anyone in Kanehurst wears. And around his neck, he has two things. He has the sort of wheel clasp that the church's Thumerian servants wear. And he has a round gold pendant. So he's someone from the Healing Church who also had a gold pendant, and um, we know we know who had a gold pendant and was from the Healing Church. And saying it's Lawrence also makes sense of one of Alfred's lines, where he says that a scholar of Bergenworth was the person who took the old blood to Canehurst, because Lawrence as well as being a head of the Healing Church, he's also technically a scholar of Bergenworth. It also lines up with the workshop chord note that we talked about way, way, way earlier, because um, it, it fits together into this little story where Lawrence shows up in Kanehurst with the old blood, gives it to them, they conceive a child, Lawrence shows up with the executioners, takes the child, takes it back to Yarnum and uses it to summon the Moon Presence. So yeah, you have this actually fairly simple explanation for all these dangling plot threads if you just assume that um, that was Lawrence. The Church of the Good Chalice statues are two statues that flank the altar of the Bloodstarved Beast's church in Old Yarnum, and they are really interesting if you look at them closely because 
The figures depicted don't seem to be human. They seem to be either beasts or some sort of like mid-transformation from human to beast. And that's interesting because the beasts that they're turning into don't really look like anything we see in the game. They have these really big upturned noses, kind of like a pig. And they have these sort of lumps on the tops of their heads. And that suddenly became kind of really interesting once the data mining got going, because it turns out there's a cut enemy that looks a lot like this. That enemy is still encounterable if you use developer chalices. And um, they are also, they're on the old loading screen that an old build used. And if you look in the data, there's like evidence for them having been an enemy in the Forbidden Woods area. So yeah, these seem to have initially foreshadowed an enemy and um, they ended up not using them, but they left the statues in. Church giants are controlled by choir bells. Um, they're controlled by bells. Basically, the undead giants that you find in the labyrinth do not have bells around their necks, and the ones guarding the Grand Cathedral do. And the missing link between the two is the cave under Yosefka's clinic, because you see giants there that are not dressed as healing church giants, but they do have the bells on, and um, the, that little cave is somewhere that the healing church are using to come and go. So basically, the healing church are finding those giants and then using the bells somehow to control them, so they work basically like guard dogs. Alright, we are now on the moon presence tier, and I've done this all in one sitting and it's like 3.30 in the morning. I am so sorry. So, how to pick up Fair Maidens. This is the title that appears on the covers and spines of quite a lot of the books you find lying around the game. It's quite visible if you look at the piles of books in The Hunter's Dream. Yosefka was originally Murgo's wet nurse is a real sort of down the rabbit hole situation. Um, basically, prior to Yosefka, the um, young lady doctor that we know of now, that role was filled by an older, sort of hunchbacked, robed woman who kind of looks like a witch. And her robes kind of make her look like a human version of Murgo's wet nurse. So that's like part one. Part two of this is that the early versions of Bloodborne had what were basically boss souls. Like things bosses would always drop. And an old list of them was pulled out of the game and they seemed to be in roughly the order that you would fight those bosses on a standard playthrough. So it's like you know, Gascoin, Cleric Beast, Witch of Hamwick, etc. And there's one of them that is around where the Shadows of Yarnum and Marta Ligarius are, and it's called The Soul of the Lesser Demon of Death and Darkness. So, Lesser Demon of Death and Darkness is the internal name for Murgo's Wet Nurse, and if you think about where that soul was located... It's around the time that the game loops back around into Yosefka's clinic, like 
you know, like Lagarius time because you got to get the um, the summons from there to fight him. Like it's it looks like it was encountered around there. So this has led to speculation that like maybe the old woman was literally in some way Mirko's wet nurse because if you looped back around into the clinic, you could have encountered her again, maybe, and that would perhaps explain why the lesser demon of death and darkness soul is where it is pale blood is the color of a blood-drained corpse the sky of the blood moon yeah this is something that miyazaki just like straight up says in the interview in the future press guide that the term pale blood is supposed to be evocative of the way that when a corpse dies, like, the oxygen stops being circulated around its bloodstream, so the blood goes from being red to being a sort of bluish purple, and that is the color that the sky goes when the red moon appears. So this is, like, going back to this idea that, like, the concept of pale blood is sort of a misdirection where the start of the game tries to make you think pale blood is a kind of blood that you'll find in Yarnum, the city that is obsessed with blood. But the deeper you go, the more you realize that pale blood is actually referring to the sky during the Mensis ritual. And what happens in that ritual is like the tearing of the veil. So seek pale blood and transcend the hunt is ultimately what we end up doing. It's just that what we find isn't literally pale blood. It's this rift between worlds, this tearing of reality that lets us go through and end the hunt that way. And I think the note is very deliberately positioned where it is because when you actually like end the hunt by seeking pale blood in game, you then go into new game plus and you see the note again and it like recontextualizes what's on it. Wandering bosses are something that you very rarely get in the Chalice Dungeons, but they do exist. Basically, in the deeper, more complex parts of the dungeons, you can sometimes encounter things like the Watchdog of the Old Lords or the Thumerian Elder or something like that. Just wandering around like a normal enemy, uh, not as a boss. Clock Tower Hunter Badge is an item that was made for the DLC and not included because they kind of changed how the DLC worked. Basically, Bloodborne's DLC started development as two different DLCs, kind of like what Dark Souls 3 ended up with, where there'd be two smaller stories that were linked together. And what ultimately happened was they combined those two stories together to make, like, the Old Hunters DLC. So it looks like there, there would have been a separate badge for each of them. The Firing Hammer badge was one, and it survives in the game now. It doesn't actually unlock very much, because um, they, they sort of spread the items around a fair bit, I think, as a result of mashing the DLCs together and making them into a more coherent environment. And the other would have been the Clock Tower Hunter badge. Presumably, that would have unlocked Maria's stuff... But they've changed it, so now you unlock her set by defeating her. It's just in the inside bath. And the Rakuyo is found in the fishing hamlet for, like, story reasons, explaining sort of, like, why Maria threw it away. 
which is something that they couldn't really do if the Rakuyo were unlocked using a badge. Cut Kanehurst level refers to there just being a lot of Kanehurst that is kind of missing. Even just from the outside of the castle, you can see that there's like, there's a wing of the castle and like towers and things that we can clearly see and look like you should be able to go into them, but you never actually can. And if you look at old development maps of the area, you can clearly see that like there's quite a few rooms and buildings on that map that don't correspond to anything we have now, so looks like there was a fair bit of cut geometry with regard to Kanehurst. And if you want to go really, really deep, um, we're starting to think that Kanehurst actually might have started off as an early design of the Lothric Grand Archives from Dark Souls 3, that they then sort of moved over to Bloodborne and... If you think about it that way, it kind of explains why this castle is like 75% library. But I guess that's another that's another video. The cry of the orphan is the same sound as Gurman's crying. I am going to say that like it is just Gurman's crying. It, it's not the orphan crying with the same sound as him. Uh, so if you catch Gurman sleeping in the dream. You can hear him sobbing and crying, and he's clearly in incredible distress. That's the noise you hear when the orphan appears. Now, if you defeat the orphan, the doll comments that German is sleeping soundly, which she's never seen before. So, the orphan is, like, the root of German's trauma? And once the orphan is gone, it, like, lifts that from German and he stops crying. So, again, the crying you hear is probably actually just German crying, not the orphan. Mad Ones in Yarnum. Mad Ones are the enemies that the Witch of Hamwick summons during her boss fight. Those, like, very tall, sort of spectral things with glowing white eyes. Those aren't the only place they're used, though. If you go to Hamwick after nightfall and have enough insight, the Mad Ones will be summoned throughout the area. And there's data, interestingly, for Mad Ones appearing in other areas of the game. The data also refers to them as being an insight effect, um, similar to the ones in Hamwick. So it looks like in an earlier version of the game, um, if you had enough insight, Mad Ones could find you anywhere. The choir wanting to stop the Mensa's ritual is, um, again, that's just part of the plot, it's not like a weird theory. The choir and Mensa's are opposed, like, violently, they are trying to kill each other. That's why you find, like, a dead choir member in Yahagul, it's why you find that guy on the bridge in the Nightmare of Mensis, he's actually a, a choir guy who's undercover. And it's also why, at least when they um when they added more stuff to the game, they added Damien of Mensis as a summon who would fight like choir things with you. Also in Bergenworth there is a note that refers to the spider hiding enlightenment and enlightenment being something that we need not share. So if you look at that note, it's like a handwritten note, and it's where the choir member is. So it's safe to assume, like, she wrote it. And 
And if you look at how that note is written in Japanese, it's written more imperatively. It's like enlightenment is something we must not share. So enlightenment in this case is what the spider is guarding, which is the red moon. So, so again, you like just put everything together. Rom is protecting us from the red moon. Mensas are trying to call down the red moon. The choir realize the red moon will fuck everything up. So they are guarding Rom and warning people against disturbing her. Music box plays Mirko's lullaby. Um, it does. I think this is on the iceberg because, like, the implication of what it sort of means that the music box plays Mirko's lullaby. Because, like, you could maybe say, well, does, um, Gascoigne or Viola have some, like, tie to the school of Mensis? Is that why it's playing Mirko's lullaby? But, like, going back to the idea of, like, Yarnum as somewhere that is full of old, half-remembered Thumerian traditions, it's possible that Mirko's lullaby is just something that, you know, like a lullaby now, it, it's like this old folk thing that no one can really pinpoint an origin for that's just sort of always been around, and I I kind of prefer to think of it that way. The Hunter's Nightmare is Buddhist hell, yes, the Hunter's Nightmare area, with the river of blood and the corpses sort of, like, drowning in it, and those big sort of bloated flea things crawling around lapping the blood up, is a pretty close approximation of the Buddhist hell scrolls that show, like, the way that sinners are tormented in the afterlife. Ludwig's design also seems to be influenced by this, because we don't really see any horse beasts outside of the nightmare. Ludwig looks really strange in comparison to everything else, but there is a horse demon in the Buddhist underworld that does torture sinners, so Ludwig seems to be kind of based on that. Yeah, he's also the horse demon from Berserk, but um, I think the horse demon from Berserk also shares the same root, so the question is like whether it went some um, Buddhist horse demon Ludwig, or Buddhist horse demon, berserk horse demon Ludwig. The other very overt part is the lead-up to the fishing hamlet, the, the path you take, because that seems to be based on the hell that children who die before their parents are sent to, which is obviously very fitting for the area, and when they're in that hell, they try to sort of redeem themselves by building little towers of stones. And there's little towers of stones all over that area. What it's getting at is like, yeah, the nightmare exists. It's like a sort of Lovecraftian dreamland. But in a way that's not very Lovecraftian, it's also specifically like something that is moral, that is a punishment for a transgression. And in this case, it's like the hunters defiled the body of cause. So... Everyone who takes on, like, the mantle of the hunter takes on the sins of the hunter, and that's where you end up in this nightmare slash hell because of what your ancestors did, essentially. The way that you get out of it um, is going to sound kind of weird, but the way that you get out of it is you kill the orphan, which sounds bad um, because it's what started the whole mess, but, like, by killing it in the nightmare, you actually send it on to, like, the next world. It's sort of like... 
turns into mist and fades away like it's passed on. And in doing that, like, because the orphan is no longer tormented, you've sort of fixed things. You, like, atoned for what happened. So that's, um, yeah, that's the whole, like, nightmare hellscape thing. And that's why it looks like Buddhist hell. All 2,300 dungeons explored. Yeah, the chalice dungeons are, like, random, but there's also only 2,300 possible layouts. And um, if you're playing East Dungeons, it's even fewer because of a glitch. I think it's only, like, 200. So basically, the Tomb Prospectors set about mapping all 2,300 layouts, and they did it. So... There is literally nothing new down there, and if you have any questions, um, that is the place to look. Kanehurst Knight. I don't quite know what this means. Um, there's two things it could refer to. One of them is an unused enemy who is a big, like, Demon Souls-looking knight with a wooden leg. And um, the reason that we're calling them a Kanehurst Knight is that like, as I talked about before, the Kanehurst statues are missing legs, so he aesthetically sort of fits in that area. The other thing it could refer to is the portrait in the Kanehurst dining hall that depicts a man in, like, knight armor, but it's not a set that you can find in the game. It's a set that's on corpses in the Chalice Dungeons. So it's sort of like... Again, it's linking Kanehurst to the dungeons. It's saying, like, hey, the people in the dungeons who wore that armor, um, over time they became the people of Kanehurst. Okay, we are now, like, way, way, way down the bottom. This is the absolute abyssal depths. Let's see if uh, I can do this before I collapse. Demons, souls, three. Ah... Okay, I think this is supposed to be Demon Souls 2. Um, basically, in its early stages of development, Bloodborne was, I'm trying to be very precise with my wording here, a continuation of the world of Demon Souls. The connection would have been, I guess, similar to the connection between, like, the Drakengard games and the Nier games, where they're kind of similar and the two continuities are connected but one is not like an explicit sequel to another they're just kind of self-contained i don't quite understand what post-rom plot holes really refers to the plot after rom i think makes pretty much perfect sense you're just running to the uh, nightmare of mensis to rescue mergo what it might be referring to is that our character just sort of does stuff. Like, it makes sense in terms of playing a video game because doors have opened, so we go through them because we're trying to get to the end of the game. But, like, as for what is driving our character, it's sort of not made clear. So it might be referring to that, but, like, I'd say that the plot holes are mostly, um, mostly pre-ROM, actually. Erden is a metaphor for Minamata disease, is something that DMC Redgrave talked about over on his channel. Basically, the way that the Erden runes work is that they increase the amount of Quicksilver that you can carry, and Quicksilver is another name for Mercury. So, in a sense, they're like increasing the amount of Mercury in your bloodstream, 
which is not a good thing to happen to you. And um, Minamata disease is a reference to a mercury poisoning outbreak that occurred in Japan. So in a sense, you can kind of see the influence of formless Erden as something that is similar to Minamata disease. Castle Archives NPC is a character who is referenced in the NPC like internal table, but never shows up in the game. There was a theory um, that I'm just going to say was like kind of my fault because I talked about this and no one else really did. Um, that the Castle Archives NPC was an unused model that we knew about that was an old man with a big book because I sort of reasoned that like, well, we don't know who this guy was, but if he's got a big book, it sort of makes sense that he might have been the, uh, the library guy. But now that we've like looked deeper into it and we've looked at like older versions of the game and stuff, the Castle Archives NPC was just a hostile Kanehurst knight who would have attacked you when you went into the Castle Archives. The character's actually visible um, in the promotional screens. If you look at them, there are promotional screenshots of the hunter in Kanehurst and they are fighting someone in the Kanehurst Knight garb with the Rider Palish. That's Castle Archives NPC. The reason he's in the screens is that he would have appeared in the game, but um, they removed him. Creatures that are fully evolved cannot give birth is a reference to a, I want to be clear, a discredited scientific theory that Miyazaki was aware of and sort of influenced the design of the story. Um... There's no indication he literally believes it's true, but it, it sort of formed the basis of the Great Ones losing their children idea. Basically, it's a theory called RK Selection, and the idea behind it is that quote-unquote more evolved creatures, they propagate the species by having a small number of children that they parent and look after and raise, very closely for a long period of time to ensure they survive, whereas quote-unquote less evolved things survive by having lots and lots and lots of offspring that fend for themselves, and it's like a survival of the fittest situation. So Miyazaki sort of took that and ran with it and came up with this notion that like the apex of all evolution, these like kind of transcendent elder god things, what if the one thing they couldn't do was have children? So that's what kind of influenced the idea of offering children to great ones, because children are the one thing that they can't have. Lawrence was originally your friend. Plot about finding him. Yeah, this is an earlier version of the story. I want to be clear here that Lawrence in this version of the story is not the Lawrence character that we're aware of now, it's a completely different character, but From just liked the name Lawrence, so they used it for both, and it makes going through, like, removed dialogue a real pain in the ass because you can't tell what Lawrence they're actually referring to. Basically, the plot at this point would have been essentially the same structure and everything, but your motive is different. You would have arrived in Yarnum. With your friend Lawrence, you would have been ministered, and then when you woke up, Lawrence would have gone, and 
The plot would have been like scouring Yarnum to try to find him, and that's what would have gotten you caught up in the events of the game. So instead of a hunter, you would be someone who is kind of playing amateur detective trying to find Lawrence, although you would still have gotten caught up in the hunt and you would have used hunter weapons and hunter tools and everything. The Lake of Mud is a fan name for an unused boss arena that looks like where you encountered the old one at the end of Demon's Souls. It's like this beach with these sort of ruined bits of stone around it. And it would have been in the Chalice Dungeons. It would have been presumably at the very, very bottom. And um, yeah, it doesn't have a name. So people called it the Lake of Mud because it's it's not even a lake. It's actually a sea. And um, there's no mud there. I mean, it's it's dirty, but I wouldn't call it muddy. It's like the the sea of rain? Clouds? Father Norbert was a character who originally fulfilled the role that Amelia does now, in that he was the boss of the Grand Cathedral. The way he was introduced and the beast he turned into was different, though. Basically, you would be told by NPCs throughout Yarnum that... If you were curious about blood, you should go to the Grand Cathedral and talk to Father Norbert. When you arrived at the Grand Cathedral, the boss was the Cleric Beast. And then when you beat the Cleric Beast, it dropped, this is back when the game did boss souls, it would drop the um, the soul of Father Norbert. And that would be the, the reveal that, oh, the, the boss you just killed, um, that, that was Father Norbert. Okay, finally limping to the finish line. The doll is based on a Canehurst Noble. So, the doll is based on Lady Maria of the Astral Clock Tower, but Lady Maria of the Astral Clock Tower wasn't added to the game until the DLC. So, we had about, I think, seven or eight months of not really having anyone the doll was based on, like, identified in-game. But if you look at the doll's design... Even if you don't know about Maria, there's so many Kanehurst motifs and traits to her that she was quite clearly based on somebody from Kanehurst. So this led to this speculation that, like, she's based on someone who was important to either German or German's apprentice. Um, German's apprentice had been identified, but we didn't know it was Maria. So, like... Yeah, the theory was, like, German or German's apprentice had had some, like, relationship with a woman from Kanehurst, and she had died, and the doll was built in her memory. And, like, she may even have been the mother of the child that was taken to be sacrificed. Because that would sort of explain, like, why they put a doll of her there, maybe to, like, comfort the child, we don't know. But, um, yeah, yeah, um, the doll throughout development was about six different people. Um... The most interesting doll asset, actually, is there is a coffin that is not used, but it's part of the Hemwick map data. And it doesn't look that um, interesting, but laid on top of it is the flowers that are in the doll's bonnet. So I'm thinking that might have at some point been the coffin of the woman the doll was based on. But um, yeah, we don't know. So, good god, that was the Bloodborne Iceberg. Um, 
I am going to add my own little bit to the bottom. And that is way, way down the bottom in the deepest, darkest abyssal depths of the ocean. You can find dense blood gems. So dense blood gems are gems that only exist in version 1.0 of the game. So you have to play it unpatched. And they're only dropped by two enemies in the whole game. And they are the two gargoyles on the final level of Thumaru Ihill. So if you play the game unpatched and you get all the way to Thumaru Ihill without ever patching the game, which means you can never go online, if you go all the way down there by yourself and you farm those gargoyles, you can find dense blood gems. All they do is raise weapon durability, which is something that other gems can already do as a secondary effect. But um, Dense Blood Gems just do that, and they do a worse job. So they're literally completely and utterly useless. But yeah, if you farm those gems, and then you patch the game to the current patch, they will stay there. So you can, I don't know, show off your um, Dense Blood Gems to people. Like, that's way more obscure than fucking Father Norbert. Okay, that was the Bloodborne Iceberg. I'm going to bed now because it's quarter to five in the morning. If you stumbled upon this video because you were looking for iceberg videos, um, check out the rest of this channel because there is a lot of Bloodborne stuff on it. That was kind of an ordeal for me, so um, I will catch you all next time. Good night.